some years ago about two brothers. We call them Billy and Bobby. And they were uh, hellions. They just were always getting into trouble and fighting, quarreling, arguing, being mischievous. And everybody knew this about Billy and Bobby. And uh, they were in school one day and out on the playground, and they had uh, basically terrorized a group of girls on the playground, so much so that the girls were just just in a, in a fit. And so the principal ended up calling Billy and Bobby's mother and said, they've been expelled. You need to come get them. And she came and got them, and she was at her wit's end. She did not know what to do with them, so she went down to the church that was just a few miles away from where they lived and um, asked the preacher if he could do anything with them. And the preacher just so happened to have gone to uh, some counseling classes recently and learned kind of some psychoanalysis of how to maybe draw out people. And so he said, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to them, but I want to talk to them one at a time. And so Bobby kind of stayed outside the office. Billy came in, and he said, Billy, have a seat. And the pastor sat back in his desk, and he asked Billy the question, where is God? Billy just stared at him. And so the preacher let 30 seconds go by and said, Billy, where is God? Billy looked up, looked to his left, looked to his right, no answer. Preacher got a little frustrated because his tactic wasn't working, so he leaned forward and he said, Billy, where is God? Billy jumped up out of his chair, flung open the door, grabbed body, ran out of the church, and ran four miles from the church to their secret hiding place behind their house without stopping. And finally, out of breath, Bobby looks at Billy and says, What is it? What is it? And Billy says, God's missing. <laughs> and they think we had something to do with it. Now, I want to use that little story as a segue into a very sad reality. In Christendom, in, in, in the church of Jesus Christ today, and in particular in the Western church, the, the, the church in America, God is missing at the center of it. God is missing at the center of it. And I, I want to show you a reason why. Because this is so important. Because you see, we, we don't want God to be missing at the center of our, of our worship and of our lives. And so, I want to show you on board why I believe that God is, is missing, even though we say we, we have God. Okay, so, basically we have two ways to do theology, and then therefore two ways to do church, and, and two ways to do our lives and our families. And, and the way that God would have it would be for us to look at God, which is called theology. What we know about God and what we believe about God. And so we could even call it theology proper. We call it proper because the proper would refer to who? 
to God Himself, right? So theology proper. Theology is what we believe about God. We call it theology proper because everything centers on God. And everything that flows from God then would be, say, our, uh, our anthropology. Now, when I use the word anthropology, what, what does that ge- generally mean? What man, right? Man, humanity, that kind of thing. And so when we use it in terms of theology, it's what do we believe about man? Well, what, what, is, what, is, what does God in our theology say about anthropology? And then when we, we study Christology, what, what is Christology? You know, study of Christ. And then when we think of, uh, now this, some of you may not know this one, but like homartiology. Anybody know what that is? It's a big one. It comes from the Greek word hamartios right there. It is the study of sin. But we can go all the way down to things like ecclesiology. Anybody ever heard of the term ecclesiology? That's the church. It's the study of the church. We can go to eschatology, which is the study of the last things. Right? But, but we view, we view anthropology, Christology, homartiology, ecclesiology in light of theology proper. But this is unfortunately what so many churches and, and seminaries and Bible colleges and people have done, is instead of starting with theology proper, they start with anthropology. And we said anthropology, Chris, was what? The study of man. The study of man. And so we start with anthropology, and instead of looking to God, we look in the mirror. And by looking in the mirror, we see ourselves. And we see what we look like. And then we know what we feel like. And we know what we think. And we know what we want. And so we feel, we think, we want. And we're really in tune with our hearts. And we're really in tune with what we see. And we're really in tune with what we want and what we desire. And then, once we get in tune with ourselves and how we feel and what we feel and what we want and what we despise and what makes us comfortable and what makes us uncomfortable, once we really see and feel ourselves, then we go to our Christology, our ecclesiology. All right, our, our, our anthropology, and then we also go to our theology, and even proper. Now, can you see how we make a mistake in our theology, and how we then make a mistake in how we do life, and church, and worship, and family, and jobs, because when we start with the wrong starting place, we're going to get wrong practice. Okay? So, so, when we start with God, and we look through the lens of God and His glory and the way that He has set things up, then we can arrive at the right way to worship, the right way to see Jesus Christ, the right way to see ourselves and our sin, and the right way to do church. If you want to know why it is that you have friends and family members who are Christians and they have worship services and you compare worship services and songs and preaching and teaching and the things that they do versus the things that we do, I can tell you that one possible reason that there's a difference is because a lot of churches ascribe to this 
And we're trying, we're trying to do this. Even though I'm, I'm not here to say we do it perfectly. In any way, shape, form, or fashion. But we're trying to do this because this is the only way we can ever have pure worship, pure doctrine, pure practice, and then therefore holy families, holy lives, and be a light in our dark world. If you can understand a little bit of what I was just talking about, say amen. amen. Okay, I'm good. All right. With that, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and we will finish our sermon series on the Reformation. Father, we would ask for you to show us your glory. Show us your power. Show us your wisdom. Show us your holiness. Show us your love. Show us your grace. Show us your salvation. Thrill our hearts with who you are. That we may live in awe of you. Worship in reverence of you. And anticipate every day the revelation of your Son Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. I want to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. The text that we're going to open up this morning and study is going to be Romans 11, 33-36. But based on the illustration that I just gave you on the board, I want us to get a running start. Because for us to have a right view of God, a theology proper that is appropriate, we have to see God. We have to understand Him and how He's revealed Himself to us in His Word. And I know of no other better way to honor the tenet sola scriptura, that is, Scripture alone, than to read passages of Scripture that show us the glory of God, at least in portion, as we lead up to uh, our text this morning. So, beginning in Genesis 1, I'm going to read some passages. Let's just observe God. Beginning in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, 
let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which according to the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There is the first indication of the triunity of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. Not vice versa. God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. 
man then goes and makes a mess of things by saying, I don't want to just live under the authority of God. I want to be God. And so man casts the whole universe under a curse because of rebellion against God. And I want you to go to Genesis chapter 12 because so much water has gone under the ark at this point. Okay, so, so, so much has happened by way of sin and rebellion. And people, even though God has warned and God has, has preserved sinners by His grace up to this point, people are trying to build a unified building, a, a, a tower as it were, to reach up into the heavens so that they might rival God. And God separates the people of the earth from all over and they speak different languages and they live in different areas. And this almost out of nowhere in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 and following, the Lord said to Abram, now, there's nothing special about Abram. He's just a, a son of a man that's been mentioned before, and he's the, the husband of a, of a lady who's been mentioned before. But the Lord says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And from this point forward, God puts His blessing on Abram and Abram's offspring, and their offspring. And they become what you and I know to be the nation of Israel. Turn to Psalm 67. God has dealt with His people he has provided for them. He has delivered them out of bondage and out of slavery. He has taken care of them in the midst of their famine and in the midst of their hunger and in the midst of being attacked by all kinds of people. But God is still bent. He is committed to do two things. Magnify the glory of His great name and not only redeem and love and save and bless Israel, but all the peoples of the earth through Israel. Psalm 67, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth, Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. 
Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. You see, God had a plan not merely to save Israel, but to save the people to the ends of the earth for His glory. That has been His plan from the very beginning, and He has been working His plan all the way through redemptive history. And now let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, two weeks ago, we read Romans 1, 16 and 17 and studied it. A lot more water has gone through underneath the bridge at this point in redemptive history. Jesus Christ has come. He was virgin born. He lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death. He rose powerfully. He ascended majestically. He's given a promise to return one day. And all of that has already transpired. And now Paul is preaching that message and planting churches in cities where people believe that message. And so in verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's Psalm 67 right there. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. And he goes on to expound, to exposit that statement from Romans 1 all the way through Romans 11. And he's going on and on about this gospel. And we see no clearer theology of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, than in Romans 3, 21-26. Look at Romans 3, 21-26. We studied it last week. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And Paul takes the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ according to the Scriptures. And he expounds on that chapter after chapter after chapter such that this book of Romans, this letter to the Roman church is the most dense and the most theologically rich letter that has ever been written. 
And he says, listen, you've got peace with God through faith in Jesus. You have received the promises of God through faith in Jesus. You were dead in Adam, but now you're alive in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. You are now dead to sin. You are alive to God. You now have a real life, a living life. You've been released from the law. You have been given over to God now that you belong to Him and you're His children and you're loved by Him. In Romans chapter 8, he expounds so beautifully on how much the love of God has been poured out into our hearts and now we know and feel the experience of God's unconditional, unwavering, unflinching love for sinners like you and me. And then in 9, 10, and 11, Paul does something amazing. It is, it is the densest theological passage probably in the Bible. And ultimately, Paul says to the church at Rome, that Israel has rejected their Messiah. And God has sovereignly ordained all of these things so that in their rejection of the Messiah, Psalm 67 can be fulfilled and all the nations of the earth can come underneath the umbrella of God's redeeming love so that whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, you can all be grafted into the tree of the root is the love of Christ and the redemption of Christ and the salvation that is in Christ. And then one day, those who are rejecting their Messiah in Israel will also be regrafted in so that God's promises will not be null and void and so that every nation on the earth can bow down and say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And at the end of all of that, we get to verse 33. And he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to God that God might be repaid? Or that He might be repaid? The giver of this supposed gift. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. What is the message today? The message is simple. God's plan of salvation magnifies the glory of God. God's plan of salvation. And by plan of salvation, I mean that People are saved according to the Scriptures alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That plan of salvation magnifies the glory of God and should transform the people of God. Now you know, just what I know, that if that last part of the big idea there, 
That that God's plan of salvation magnifies the glory of God. If we just ended it there, we could have a wonderful... Yes, teaching, lecture, class. But that is not what God wants. That is not what the Apostle Paul wants. That's not what the Holy Spirit wants. You see, God's plan of salvation magnifies God's glory so that the people of God can live a transformed life. And in living that transformed life, they then magnify this great God of salvation. And so let's look at verses 33 through 36. Because we really, we, we really see three aspects of the glory of God. We, we see, first of all, the depth of God's glory. The depth of God's glory. We see it in verses 33 through 35. You have the, the exclamatory statement of the depth of God's glory. He says, oh, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And so he He first of all uses this word depth. And we all know generally what depth is. It's you take a a material or or, or you take even a canister and you you look through that material and you see the the length that goes through that material to understand its depth. And so we we, we think in terms of, of maybe... Maybe a treasure chest of something. And so you're, you're trying to understand the depth of this treasure chest. And what Paul is saying is, is that, okay, if we think of God and we think of His wisdom and His knowledge, think of this gigantic treasure chest and think of it with, with, with riches, with these riches. Now you can think of whatever picture you think of in, with riches, but he says that the depth of that is Amazing, and he's about to describe it. Now, the the ESV says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I believe the I believe maybe the the best way to actually uh, translate that is, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And I hope that doesn't lose some of you. But what, what Paul is indicating is, is that. The wisdom and the knowledge of God is so rich and it is so deep that you and I can't even understand it. He is incomprehensibly glorious and beautiful in His wisdom and in His knowledge. Let's just pause for a moment. The fact is, God has revealed Himself to us in His Word. Christianity is not like uh, many other religions that are esoterical or mysterious in such a way as that we just throw up our hands and we say, oh, we don't know what God is like. We, can't, we could never begin to think we could understand what God is like. No, we're not like that. Because God has superintended the revelation of His Word in such a way that it preserved it over 5,000 years more and, and has said, This is what I'm like. Now you can never know all of me. You can never plumb the depths of who I am and what I'm about, but I will let you in on my character, many of my attributes, my ways, and my actions so that you can understand that I am holy. I'm sinless. I'm supreme. I'm set apart. I am righteous. Everything that I do, everything that I think, 
Every act that I take and every word that I say is pure and righteous and flawless. And I am loving. And I redeem sinners. And I care for people when they are at their lowest. And and we could go on and on about how God has revealed Himself to us. And what Paul is saying is that we have just begun to plumb the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And he has gone over and he's, he's basically said... Can you believe this? A holy God is is willing to save an unholy people. A righteous God is willing to be in a relationship with unrighteous people, so much so that He sends His eternal beloved Son, Jesus, to come and live on their behalf and then be punished in the way that they should be punished and then rise from the dead so that He could purchase their lives forever and ever and ever. Who could even think about such a thing? Who could even dream up of such a thing? And then He's got this special people and, 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 and though He is willing to set them aside and their hearts are hardened right now so that he can usher in millions and millions of other people who are not of Israel so that he can show how amazing and infinite his love is for all kinds of sinners. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of Almighty God. See, that, that's what he's getting at right there in that, in that statement, that exclamation. And then he, he, he grounds it. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments. How, how inscrutable his ways. Now, th- these judgments, we, we shouldn't be thinking like, you know, his, he's, he's got the gavel in hand and he's striking down everybody, like condemning them because of their guilt. These are more just like decisions. These are decrees that God has made in redemptive history. And what does he say? What does Paul say about God's decisions and God's ways and that he acts? He says they are unsearchable, and this word inscrutable means untraceable. If I, were to, if I were to drive my car through the field out here beside the church, you guys would be able to see where I drove my car through the field, wouldn't you? Because I left a trace. All right? What Paul is saying is that we can know that God has done amazing things, and we can even know God Himself, but the the amazingness of His ways, the plan of salvation and the execution of that plan are so beautiful and so deep and so rich and so infinite that there's not even a trace. We can't can't trace it. It's untraceable. That's how deep and big and amazing His wisdom and knowledge are. Now, We have defined over and over again wisdom as the skill to effectively navigate all of life toward the glory of God. Some of you kids even know that definition by heart. When Paul is talking about the wisdom of God, he is saying God has the infinite skill to decree and direct everything for the glory of God. Let's just pause for a moment. Church, every single thing that has ever occurred, every material thing that has ever existed, 
every animal that has ever lived, every relationship that has ever been had, every family that has ever existed, every church that has ever come into fruition, every false religion, every terrible dictator, every single thing, every single act, every single word will ultimately go to magnify the wisdom of a God who is out to glorify Himself through creation. That's why I think it was R.C. Sproul who said, there is not a maverick molecule in the universe because God directs everything for His glory. And He does so with infinite wisdom. Now He grounds that statement in 33 by taking a couple of passages in the Old Testament to to even further tell us about the depth of His glory. In verse 34, He takes Isaiah. In Isaiah 41, And he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And in Isaiah, what's happening is the people of Israel have been taken captive by Babylon and they are struggling for a second time and they can't see how there's any way they could possibly be on top again. They can have success again and they can have glory again. And God, through Isaiah, actually says to the people of Israel, like, who do you think you are? I am the God of the universe. I have infinite wisdom and infinite power, and I have no counselors because I know all things past, present, and future. I know all things actual. I know all things potential. I know everything that is. Who could possibly be my counselor? I know what I'm going to do, and I will ultimately deliver you. And so Paul is grounding this idea of the infinite wisdom of God. In that statement. And then in verse 35, he goes to Job. And Job has been wrestling with really questioning the righteousness of God, the fairness of God, because Job has experienced terrible suffering. And Job knew that he had lived a morally upright life. And Job is like, oh, man, God, I just don't know that, I don't know that you're right. I don't know you're just. I don't know that you're good. And then, and then God goes on for over two chapters and says, Job, I was just wondering, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I created every kind of animal according to its kind? Where were you when I kind of mapped out the tributaries and the rivers and the mountains and, and everything underneath? Where were you when I divided the peoples from other peoples? And where were you when I have overseen not only this planet and this solar system, but all planets and all solar systems? Where were you, Job? And then you have the statement, or who has given a gift to him? That is, like, who has given a gift to God that 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 person who gave a gift to God might have to be repaid by God? He rebukes Job, and in a sense, Paul rebukes the church, and for us, we're informed. We, We don't ever give to God anything that He hasn't first given to us. 
the depth of God's glory is unsearchable, it is inscrutable, it is untraceable. But for that that we do know, it is amazing, it is incredible, and we must just bow our knees and humble our hearts to a God who is so big and so intelligent and so wise, and He still loves you and me. The depth of God's glory. In verse 36a, we see the dominion of God's glory. Paul says, for. Because that's true. Because the riches of His wisdom and His knowledge are infinite and amazing and glorious and, and my mind and my, my brain just, gets, just hurts even thinking about it. Paul says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Now just keep your eyes on that statement because I just want you to see the three elements of this dominion of God's glory. When he says, from him, he's saying that God is the source of everything. The word from, right? means out of him. From the person and power of God is everything. God is the source of all things. And then the phrase, and through him. He's saying that God is the means that all things exist. In other words, God is not simply the from Him God in that He made everything, He wound it up like a clock and just stepped away from it and just let it do its thing and let people do their thing and let animals do their thing and solar systems do their thing and the sun do its thing and, and all of that. No, no. Paul is saying that not only from God does everything exist and have its being, but he's saying through God everything has its, um, has its existence and its being. Such that church, I think, I think we, we need to get here. We need to get this detailed about it. You and I right now are breathing air and our heart continues to beat Right now, because God is causing it to be so. Thank you, God. You see, we don't do anything, we don't think anything, we don't go anywhere, we don't say anything. We don't participate in anything apart from the work of God to sustain and to hold up and to cause us to do and say and think all those things. Finally, under this heading, it says, and to Him are all things. You see, he, He's not just the, the source, and He's not just the means. But church, this is what we need to understand in a very big way. He's the goal of all things. God is the goal of everything that exists. Christopher, your soccer. Joshua, your soccer. 
The goal of your soccer playing is to glorify God. Josh Miller, the goal of your job is to glorify God. Ryan, the goal of your termite and pest control working every day and getting underneath those houses is in some way to magnify the greatness and the glory of God. You see, when we talk about what's going on over here, starting with theology proper or starting with anthropology, this is the crux of it all. If we don't understand that our lives and our families and our marriages and our children and our jobs and our churches and our relationships all have one chief primary goal, which is the glory of God, then I guarantee you over time we will go over and erase that chart on the left and we will subscribe to that chart on the right and we will start fashioning God into our own image. God is the goal of all things. And I, I remember reading years ago, probably 20 years ago now, John Piper's book, Desiring God. And I read then The Pleasures of God, and I read some of his other books. And I think this is important for me to just kind of just, just pull over the side of the road and just say what he had said. He says, now does this then make God like prideful and arrogant? And does it make him just kind of stuck on himself and all of that? And his answer, Piper's answer is, no, it doesn't. Because if God made the chief end of his existence anything but himself, what would God be? He would be an idolater. Chris, if he, if he made his existence and his goal, Chris Heitch, God would be bowing his knee to your existence and to your glory. And that would be true for anybody. And that would make God an idolater. God is not an idolater, and we should be glad that He's not an idolater. We should be glad that God is about God. Because when God is about God, He then loves us so that we can be about God, and we can behold His glory, we can take part in His glory, and we can see His glory forever and ever and ever if we bow our knees and our hearts to His Son, Jesus Christ. So we see the depth of His glory and the dominion of His glory. Finally, we see the desire for His glory. The desire for His glory. Paul says, To Him be glory forever. Amen! So he expresses exactly what he wants. Paul the Apostle says, I want this God, this rich in wisdom and rich in knowledge, this one who, whose ways are inscrutable and his judgments are unsearchable and his mind is unfathomable and his grace is amazing so much so that I can't even understand it all. I want this God to receive glory. I want him, his glory, his beauty, his excellence to be magnified not only in my life but in your life and not only in your life but in all the world and not in all the world but all of the universe that forever and ever and ever this great and glorious God who has set up a salvation that if you have faith alone in Christ alone you can be delivered from your sins I want him to receive glory forever and then he stamps it 
with a word that we often don't really think much of. But this word, amen, is let it happen. Let it be so. I want it to happen. God, make this happen. Amen. Let it be so. The Apostle Paul was unapologetically a theologian and therefore a Christian who started off with theology proper, not anthropology. The Apostle Paul viewed life and understood life in light of the glory of God, not in light of the likeness or the glory of man. Now, when I said in the big idea that God's plan of salvation magnifies the glory of God, I also said that it should do what? It should transform the people of God. It should transform the people of God. And I'll simply want us to read and meditate on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Because Paul follows up the depth of God's glory, the dominion of God's glory, and the desire for God's glory with this statement. Hey, I appeal to you, therefore. Hey, based on what I just said, based on the theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ, based on the glory of God, brothers, brothers and sisters, church, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What do we do in light of the glory of God as seen in the salvation of God by faith alone, according to grace alone, in Christ alone? What do we do? We offer God our lives. We say, here's my life, God. I'm not going to ignore your glory. I'm not going to despise your glory. I'm going to love your glory. I'm going to seek your glory. And I want my life to be transformed from the inside out so that I want my life and my heart and my mind and my thinking and, and everything that I do to be in accordance with your character and your attributes that are communicable to me. So I want to walk in holiness. I want to walk in love. I want to walk in grace. I want to be righteous. I, I want to in some way magnify the greatness of your glory and your excellence and your righteousness by the way that I think, by the things that I want and by the way that I live, Lord, would you help me be transformed? You see, if you respond to the glory of God in the salvation that He has wrought to you in any other way than the heartbeat of Romans 12, 1 and 2, you've really got to question your spiritual state. If you can see the greatness of God in His inscrutable wisdom and knowledge and glory and say, but you know what, I think I'm still just going to go back to my sin. 
I think I'm still just going to go back to the way that I've always treated my wife. I think I'm still going to go back to screaming and yelling at my kids when I don't get my way with them. I think I'm still going to go back to complain about my employer. I think I'm still going to go back to be a griper. I think I'm still going to go back and question the, uh, the, the goodness of God and complain to Him. I think I'm still going to go back and just live the same way that I've always lived because that's the thing that I've always done. Church, don't be so haughty. Don't be so haughty. People who experience the glory of God in this kind of salvation, do they fall? Yes. Do they get in ruts of sin? Yes. But their hearts are always pulled back to this theology proper that says, God, you are great. I want to experience your greatness and I want to manifest your holiness in life. Would you help me get out of this rut? Okay, this is what I want us to do. If you can, I'd like for you to bow your head in meditation. Now, whether you want to close your eyes or not, that is up to you, however you can meditate best. (coughs) Martin Luther wrote a song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in this song it says, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we In our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabbath is His name from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Right now, I want you to understand that when Luther said, one little word shall fail him, that is, fail the prince of darkness, if you've ever asked the question, what is that word? Luther says that word is liar. Liar. The prince of darkness is a liar. 
He lies to you, and He says to you, you've got to work harder to have salvation. He says to you, you've got to be more religious to experience God's love. He lies to you and says you're not good enough to get back in good graces with God. Just go your own way because He'll never have you. He says to you that you've got to heap upon yourself religious works, good works. You've got to dig yourself out of this hole. And what the Apostle Paul and what Reformation theology says is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And that's it. End of story. Period at the end of the sentence. Trust in that reality. And as we respond to this series today, Would you please absorb Reformation theology that your salvation is glorious in that it contributes to the magnification of the glory of your great God. Rejoice in it and be able to stand firm in the midst of all other temptations to do otherwise.